A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. Ultimately, the solutions that we encourage are places that are meant to be intergenerational, meant to be inclusive, and they're meant to really serve everyone, regardless of age, regardless of ability. So I think a really successful frame, it's a really innovative way of approaching the issue because everybody can see themselves in that frame. You're either thinking about your own retirement and your, you know, the latter chapter of your life, perhaps, and how you want to live and what your needs will be, or it may be that you're starting to care for an aging parent and realizing that their housing needs have changed and maybe there aren't the kind of options in your community that you wish were there. On this episode, I'm speaking with Daniel Aragoni, Director of Livable Communities at AARP. She works to support AARP's 53 state offices, including DC, the US Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, and the nearly 500 localities in several states enrolled in the AARP network of age-friendly states and communities. Danielle leads the team responsible for supporting age-friendly network members. They develop free practitioner-focused publications on topics ranging from ADUs to placemaking to rural livability. They also deliver direct technical assistance to nearly 100 communities each year. Her team also disseminates a free weekly newsletter on livable communities, reaching more than 85,000 local leaders around the country. She's an urban planner by education and has nearly 20 years of professional experience, including prior leadership positions at the US EPA and HUD. She also serves as a board member for the League of American Bicyclists. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Danielle, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I know that these days you refer to yourself as a Californian living on the East Coast. So tell us about your roots and upbringing out on the West Coast. Yeah, I am actually a fifth generation Californian. My great grandparents and great great grandparents first emigrated there as farmers, and even my paternal grandparents emigrated from Switzerland, all of whom were sort of involved in the agriculture industry in some form or fashion. So, like, being a Californian is really important to me, and it's sort of unexpected and inadvertent that I've ended up here on the East Coast for about 20 years, but I, I cling heartily to those California roots. And tell me a little bit about your parents. What was that upbringing like? What kind of professions were they in and, and all that? Yeah, sure. So I was raised actually on a small ranch at the edge of San Jose, California. Both my parents were public high school teachers and did this ranching thing on the side. Again, both of them had sort of come from that world in some way. So yeah, they were teachers. They ran the small ranch on the side. And I, so I grew up really kind of playing in our fields and our barn and whatnot with my sisters and sort of always looking longingly at the folks who lived in neighborhoods down the road from us. But that was very much my experience as, as a rural kid who sort of saw from the outside what it looked like to live in a more, um, I guess, suburban context. 
Mm. And, and you actually mentioned to me in earlier conversation how that ranch ended up being sold and there was an Exxon Research and Development Park you mentioned that was going to be planned there. Yeah. How did that sort of impact your upbringing kind of when you left that area? Yeah, definitely. So I look back on that as being, I think, like the early seeds of my interest in land use because it turned out that Exxon had an interest in acquiring our ranch and the land around it to develop a research and development park. And for anyone who knows San Jose knows that it has sprawled to the sort of nth degree to the degree that it could. And it's for the most part, it's been converted into you know homes or, or commercial areas and things like that. It turned out that the space ultimately was not developed in that way, but that really forced a decision point for my parents and ultimately led to them selling the ranch. And really it led to sort of, I would say, the death of a lot of the sort of agricultural activity that had been a part of that part of San Jose for many generations prior. Kids who grew up in 4-H, kids who grew up raising animals, kids who grew up on sort of rural bus routes, I think for the most part, that's kind of gone away. And so for me, recognizing the link between how land is used efficiently or not efficiently and the implications that that has for all walks of life, whether you come from an ag life or whether you come from sort of more urban background, thinking carefully about land use is is really what's going to either preserve those precious areas and that way of life, or it's going to be the death of it, frankly. What's interesting, and this is actually just something I thought about, is, is we actually have a lot of guests on the podcast that have this really unique background where there, there's a very rural component and then there's a very decidedly urban component. And I'm curious, because I think this starts to fall in line with that, is how did that insight of the ranch life impact maybe the friends you had growing up and sort of when you transitioned into more of an urban suburb setting, how did that change your outlook on life? I mean, even as a young person. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, as a ranch kid, you kind of grow up a little bit alone. You have to fend for yourself and make your own fun. And as I mentioned, I kind of looked with some envy at the kids who lived in neighborhoods where they could, you know, walk two doors down and knock on the house of someone and go play. Like that was such a foreign concept to me, but made me realize the importance of community and how you can find community in lots of different ways. Certainly we had a community as a part of the ag world and the 4-H community, but the built environment really drives a lot of possibility or prevents the community from forming. So when I moved from the east side of San Jose, which is where our ranch had been, which had been a very diverse sort of multicultural, you know, majority minority community, into more of a suburban context when we were finally forced to kind of sell the ranch. It really awoke for me, I think, the difference in how different mixes of people can create a very different kind of environment. So I moved from a very diverse environment to one that was primarily white. And it left me really hungry, I think, for that sort of natural vibrancy and the richness that comes from a more multicultural, multiracial environment. And you actually ended up in a private Catholic girls' high school. Is that right? I did. Yeah. It, it was kind of a far cry from the public school that I'd been in all along. The junior high school I'd been in two years prior, there was like some gang fight and sort of criminal activities and whatnot. And then two years later, I find myself in this rarefied private all girls environment. But it was a choice that my mom ultimately made at this point. She was a single parent, which looking back, I really appreciate both from the degree to which it provided this all women's environment in which it really did allow for every girl there to thrive sort of in their own right. But the other really important thing, I think, which probably was part of my mom's intention sending us there was just their service orientation and the the degree to which the school really imbued all of its students and me certainly with this notion of service and how important service was. The school's motto was not words, but deeds. And I look back on that now and it still really drives 
my professional choices, my career choices, my personal values, this notion of serving others. So I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that experience. So when it came to your college path, I mean, we alluded to this earlier in the podcast, you know, you're kind of a a West Coaster living on the East Coast, but did you end up traveling across the country for school or where did you find yourself for that phase of your upbringing? Yeah, I ended up kind of looking northwards. I tend to be a little bit of a contrarian sometimes. So most folks were going south and I wanted to go north. And there was something that really drew me to Oregon, frankly, I think in part because of its sort of inherent love of land and nature and appreciation of the environment. I think that's just so part and parcel of Oregon's ethos. And then also just the school was appealing to me for a number of different reasons. I ended up actually kind of discovering urban planning there coincidentally, and also found a community of people there that I I still really value and still really cherish as a result of that. One of the things that I wrote down in our earlier conversation has to do with your desire to get back in touch with multiple cultures. And you told me a couple stories about the cross-cultural dorm that you stayed in at the University of Oregon. For our listeners, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, that was really formative for me, I think. So as many dorms have, and as many schools do, they have the option of sort of thematic choices that you can make. University of Oregon at the time where I went to school had the option of a cross-cultural dorm. And for me and for all of my sort of friends and ultimately sort of family really who went there, it was really important to know that we were all coming to this place where we would live together for ultimately a couple of years with the same set of values. We all really cherished and valued the fact that we came from different perspectives. We were able to sort of really celebrate that in lots of different ways from everything from this like Vietnamese card game that we would play on the weekends to the fact that, um, you know, we sort of had an infusion of Hawaii in our dorm, which really kind of helped all of us better understand what it's like for a Hawaiian living in the small town of Oregon. But that shared goal and that shared sort of values, set of values around living in a cross-cultural situation really still bonds us today. And for me, it was helpful to know that there are communities like that out there that I could sort of find and gravitate towards and become a part of. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Okay, so quick time check. This is the early 90s. You graduated. And side note, you're in the Pacific Northwest. So grunge rock was just really hitting the mainstream at this exactly. point. Yeah. <laughs> quick, pl- quick plug for my grunge rock fans out there. You joined the Peace Corps and you did that for two years. And I'm thinking back to, again, earlier conversations we had leading up to the podcast, you told me that this was a really seminal experience for you. So what was that like and why was it so important? Going into Peace Corps was again something I didn't go into college knowing that I wanted to do. And then when I discovered that opportunity again at college, it was like, dang, it just connected with me. So instantly it was something I really wanted to do. For me, it was challenging in ways that people might expect in that it forces you to really live outside your culture, live in a different environment where you have to learn a different language. In my case, we had to conduct business both in English, which was helpful. I was in Kenya, um, but also in Swahili, which many of us did not go into Peace Corps knowing how to speak Swahili. So the challenges that just come with sort of cultural adaptation and the language were, of course, I think, fairly common to many Peace Corps volunteers. But for me too, like I was a fairly young person entering Peace Corps in this profession. I actually went in as a town planner and was on the younger end of the volunteers in the planning program in Peace Corps in Kenya. And so I really went into it not being sure, frankly, that I had a lot to offer as a recent graduate. But it turned out that I think a lot of the skills and a lot of the sort of backbone of planning is really an extension of sort of some common sense practical applications. Where in 
you're trying to put, create a situation that allow people to contribute and to share and to inform in ways that allow them to ultimately shape their community. So again, lots of learning along the way, but that really did, I think, for me, ground me in the fact that the good community design and good planning is ultimately about empowering the people who live there to have their voice, to find their voice, and then to translate that voice into a vision for the future. And another lesson learned there was this idea that you mentioned that the day-to-day struggles are so real that it's really difficult to kind of pull the lens back and have this 20-year plan conversation when you know day after day isn't necessarily a cakewalk for anyone in that area. And it sounded like you as being a young college grad kind of struggled with that. And that, that wasn't the easiest thing to see. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that was certainly the case in a developing country like Kenya, which arguably is better off than many other places. And certainly the district where I happen to live was a little bit better off than some of the other districts in Kenya in terms of opportunity and relative wealth. Because when people are sort of concerned about can they afford, in the case of Kenya, it was the price of sugar. Sugar is a very important commodity for people to be able to purchase and have in their home, but also a sort of an indicator of the market in general. When people were worried about the cost of sugar or rice or milk and the fluctuations that that brought into their lives, it was very hard to get them to focus on thinking about what they want life to be in 20 years. I did end up working on a couple of communities that were able to sort of walk that fine line of both being mindful of the day-to-day concerns, but also knowing how critically important it is to think longer term. But again, those are challenges that are not unique to Kenya. Those are challenges that prevail in the US in any planning exercise where people are worried about you know, the day-to-day minutiae, the day-to-day concerns that, that color their lives. And it, it's very hard sometimes to get them to step back and think long-term. Ultimately, in Kenya, they sort of concluded that planning was maybe not the best fit for that country and the program closed. But um, I, I do know that we made some good happen in a, in a few communities, which is great. So after a couple of years, you returned to the US. And I'll just go ahead and uh, drop a little teaser in here that you did finally make it to the East Coast and you landed at Cornell. What did you end up studying? Yeah. So I ended up at Cornell University for a master's in um, regional planning, which again was sort of an extension of this like fascination that I had with how you can involve people in shaping better places that ultimately deliver a better quality of life for the people who live there. So at Cornell, what was appealing to me was both the idea that I could sort of continue the work on international development. I could also continue my focus and my interest in housing. Um, I ended up doing a, a master's thesis there on, on an affordable housing technique called um, lease purchase homeownership. The other thing that appealed to me about Cornell was their very strong real estate program and their hotel program. So I was able to really walk away both with the kind of fundamentals of how to finance, in this case, primarily housing developments, real estate developments, but also with the theoretical backdrop of why it's so important to engage people, why it's so important to sort of think about regional economies and how all these pieces connect together. Urban planning is such a complex field and it's so multifaceted. At least coming out of Cornell, I had a sense of the sort of wide breadth of issues that we need to be mindful of as planners. So this is now late 90s, right? And you're, you're sort of in full swing and you're starting to embark on a few early career stops. So let's kind of turn the corner here and give the listeners a sense of those high points, some of those early career stops, because there are some really noteworthy names on the list. Yeah, sure. So I was lucky enough to um, emerge from Cornell with the ability to be a presidential management fellow, which is kind of like a an on-ramp to, to federal service, which... Again, I didn't necessarily set out to do, but it turned out to be a really good fit for me for many years. My first stop there was in the housing finance world, entity that at the time regulated Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, didn't regulate them well enough as we learned in later decades. But nevertheless, 
that was not necessarily the greatest fit for me. So I was able to shift over to US Agency for International Development. It was kind of at the sweet spot of being able to build on what I had learned in Kenya, build on what I'd seen in Kenya in terms of deploying resources through USAID in developing countries, specifically around urban programs. And it's how do you, we worked very hard to work with local governments and with national governments to help strengthen the way cities are run and managed so that better services were getting to people and better land use practices were being employed. So I was there for a couple of years, then I got engaged and, and didn't really want to travel so much anymore and was looking to shift to a more domestic focus and was lucky enough to stumble upon the EPA's Environmental Protection Agency Smart Growth Program, which had been founded by Harriet Tregoning, who has gone on to do some amazing things, including acting as state of Maryland's first smart growth cabinet member and, and much more. It was later led by Jeff Anderson, who later went on to run Smart Growth America. And both of them are, I think, true powerhouses in this field and real mentors and folks that I admire and, and respect. So I had the great good fortune of working for Jeff directly for several years. Took a little bit of a break to have some kids and raise them. Actually made my way back to California for a few years and then was able to sort of rejoin the, the workforce in a robust way in about 2007. And from that point on, stayed at EPA and then shifted over to HUD, where at the time, Harry Dragoning actually had been hired by Sean Donovan, secretary at the time, to run some climate resilience work, which I found incredibly exciting and incredibly enticing and was able to join her there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And talk about, that was the, um, if my notes are correct, the Office of Economic Resilience. Was that right? Was that the name? Exactly. It was a product out of the HUD DOT EPA Partnership for Sustainable Communities that had started under the Obama administration. It was, I think, a really seminal piece of work or body of work in which three federal agencies kind of aligned their mission and their programs to really mimic and model what we think localities are best served by doing. We know that things work better when housing and transportation and environmental concerns are all kind of aligned and not working at cross purposes. And this was the federal government's way of leading by example. So one of the byproducts of that partnership was the creation of what had been the Office of Sustainable Housing and Communities and HUD. And that went on to become renamed as the Office of Economic Resilience. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com slash blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. Tell me about how did Hurricane Sandy fit into this story? Yeah, so what was interesting was the Office of Sustainable Housing Communities had for many years been working to implement sustainable communities grants. So this sort of fostered regional planning, both at the regional and again, even more integrated planning at the local and district level. But as a byproduct of that, what I think became increasingly clear was that there was a real need to focus more on climate resilience. And so again, thanks to the vision of Sean Donovan and Harriet, they were able to peel off about a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, from the Hurricane Sandy Recovery Community Development Block Grant 
disaster recovery appropriation that had originally been about $16 billion. Those funds were not being spent as quickly as Congress had anticipated. And so Harriet and Secretary Donovan were able to work with Congress to, to peel some of that money off and to agree to award it competitively. And the real exciting thing about this work, which ultimately became the National Disaster Resilience Competition, was that it helped to shift the conversation entirely to move beyond just sustainable regional planning to really think about how can you do that with a resilient outcome in mind. How can you sort of use every decision that the locality has at their disposal and filter in climate resilience, social resilience, economic resilience, so that it becomes part and parcel of how a community, a region operates. So they were successful in pulling that money aside. It was a, about a 16-month competition in which 50 or more entities were invited to participate. These are primarily cities, in some cases counties. And as a result of that, not only did every one of the entities going through the process emerge with a resilience plan in place and a better understanding of, of how to become more resilient, but it also funded 13 really instructive resilience projects all across the U.S. Everything from a seawall in Manhattan to relocation of an entire community outside Louisiana. It's really a project to watch and continues to be unfolding in real time now. So this actually kind of butts up against this transition, we'll call it, in 2017 when a new administration came into leadership. There were a lot of initiatives around green climate sustainability that were um, more or less ignored or sort of shut down depending on who you talk to. Obviously, we know there was a big there. And whether fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how certain people look at it, that's what it was. And that's right around the time too that you decided to transition over to ARP. And I'm really excited to talk about this because I know I was the first to admit I was really surprised to learn that AARP had any sort of livable community type program. So I'm curious at the very kind of onset for you, what was that role and, and how did you find yourself being drawn over to AARP? Yeah, you're not the only one who's surprised. I was too, to be perfectly honest. As you said, you know, in, in 2017, it became clear that a lot of the good work that Office I ran at that point was doing probably wasn't going to carry forward. And I think I, I did sort of recognize that there was great opportunity elsewhere. And so that led me to look for a new job. And I was really very lucky to discover this opportunity. I too did not have an understanding of what ARP was doing on the livable communities space. It turns out we had been involved in livable communities related matters for as many as like 20 years on sort of incremental way. But starting in 2018, shortly after I came, it became a strategic priority for the organization. The way the ARP thinks about the issue is, I think, in realization and a recognition of the fact that by 2034, we'll be a country comprised of more older adults, meaning 65 plus, than children, 18 and below. And that moment in time, I think, is a real wake-up call, not just for our country, but for localities that look at their demographics and ask themselves the question, are they ready? Are we ready? So we often here in ARP work directly with what we'll call influencers, so local leaders, advocates, heads of chambers of commerce, CDCs, nonprofits, and the like, to help them sort of ask the questions that need to be asked. You know, are the right sort of housing options available? in a community that would not only meet the needs of your changing demographics and serve the needs of older adults, but are the right kind of housing choices in the place that create a place that serves all ages? We ask those same questions around mobility and transportation and public spaces, but it all comes back to this notion of older adults are kind of our driving force 
but ultimately the solutions that we incurred are places that are meant to be intergenerational, they're meant to be inclusive, and they're meant to really serve everyone, regardless of age, regardless of ability. So I think a really successful frame, it's a really innovative way of approaching the issue because everybody can see themselves in that frame. You're either thinking about your own retirement and your, you know, the latter chapter of your life, perhaps, and how you want to live and what your needs will be. Or it may be that you're starting to care for an aging parent and realizing that their housing needs have changed and maybe there aren't the kind of options in your community that you wish were there. So it, it's been a really successful frame and I think an interesting way of approaching a lot of the issues that, that we all care about. Yeah, no, let, let's let's dig into that actually. So let's, if possible, let's pull the lens back a bit and let me send a, just a big question your way because I know it's an equally big answer. And I want to hear about how you describe the work you do and sort of the different lanes that you are associated with because it's not just one thing. And I know that it you know kind of constitutes three, four, five different lanes, so to speak. So the best you can, I know that's a huge question, but could you walk us through just exactly what you and your team are doing? So one of the amazing things about AARP is that we have this incredible nationwide infrastructure. So we actually have a state office in every single state, plus DC, Puerto Rico, and Virgin Islands. And that infrastructure allows us to work, I think, really organically across the US to be responsive to very unique state conditions and state interests and state political dynamics. But also it allows us to work in community in a really authentic way. So our job here at the sort of national office, the, the program that I lead is to support our state offices, both their staff and their incredible volunteer corps to be involved in communities to help them create great places for people of all ages. And we do that in a few different ways. So one, we really think about sort of what programs are needed in order to support our state offices or again, their volunteers to, to become active in community. So we know that there's a lot of opportunity and need around transportation or housing, for example. We know that, for example, on transportation, that the fatality rate for pedestrians is disproportionately higher for older adults in something like 35 states. So in response to that, if an ARP office or a volunteer wants to get involved, we work to empower them with information and tools that allow them to affect change locally. So for example, publication that we have available for free or download right now is called the Walk Audit Toolkit. So again, we're trying to sort of equip people to assess their neighborhood, to walk around in a very clear way, articulate where the breakdown is, whether it's street crossings that are too short or you know hazardous sidewalks where roots are causing the sidewalks to buckle, which make for unsafe walking environments for people. What are the barriers that are keeping that community from having a safer pedestrian environment and then equip them with the information and the tools and the language to advocate for change. So a lot of what we do is around, in that respect, I would say sort of the publications and the tools. We have a new publication that we released last year on accessory dwelling units, which we are seeing has been very well received in part because ADUs are very conventional. They're, they're sort of an ancient housing solution. You can see them in our, our oldest downtowns and you know, on farms, you can imagine the sort of secondary building being built for a temporary need. But in most localities in the US today, in the last 50, 70 years, they've been illegal. So helping communities think about how to create those mother-in-law units, those attic conversions, those basement apartments, and make those legal and make those part of the existing housing stock. We've seen a lot of opportunity in that. So again, our ADU guide is all about empowering people to tell the story of how ADUs fit in a community and what some of the opportunities around that might be. So I would say our publications are one sort of approach. We also run a program really that sort of walks localities and state governments 
through this set of questions about how to become more age-friendly. So it's called the AARP Network for Age-Friendly States and Communities. We have upwards of 450 communities signed on. We have six states signed on. And what that means is that that city council or that state government, the governor, him or herself, or the mayor of that city has committed to a five-year process to become more age-friendly. That then sort of sets up a set of steps that is very much community-led, often volunteer-led, where they're going out and asking older adults and members of the community, what is it that you need for this place to be a better place for you to age in place? And that includes a lot of action steps and, again, resources along the way. So publications, process, I think, is a really important one. And then the last one I would point to is sort of the grants that we make. So actually, at this moment, we have the application window open for our fourth round of community challenge grants, where we as ARP are actually investing in real quick action, sort of tangible change in community that can demonstrate concepts that can really sort of change the conversation. So whether that's temporary bike lane that you might paint down Main Street, just prove the case that it's actually not going to you know, impede traffic or affect businesses negatively. Or maybe it's a demonstration project around a, a traffic calming measure. Or maybe it's a, a public space enhancement where you're adding benches or lighting or wayfinding to improve the safety and accessibility of a park. All of those things and more are the kinds of things that we try to fund directly in communities with the idea that sometimes you just need that little infusion of cash to demonstrate a concept that the community can really run with. Tell me a little bit about livable communities as we look ahead, you know, 2020, new decade. What are the big goals and aspirations of your team as you look ahead at this point? I think there's a few different areas. I think one, we're starting to see our state offices and the communities with whom we work really get involved in a lot of local advocacy. So this is where they're actually sitting up there in front of council or maybe even on commissions to advocate and put in place policies that are going to affect long-term change. That means maybe the adoption of complete streets policies or Vision Zero, or again, a policy change that would enable ADUs to be built. So I see a really long and sort of productive future for local advocacy. One of the things that I think we continue to hear a need for is more focus on rural places. So we know that a lot of the housing and transportation and public space solutions tend to come from urban places. It's not always evident to rural communities that they work there as well. So we've spent the last year kind of unpacking that a little bit. We just released a new publication called the Rural Livability Workshop Report, which kind of distills what we learned in a workshop last year. And I think it really makes the effective case that there's a lot of very tactical, low-cost, available tools and techniques available to communities to make them even more livable, more age-friendly than they currently are. So we are actually working this year with a handpicked group of rural communities to test out some of those concepts, get a little bit of feedback, and then continue to make sure that we're delivering the right kind of information and resources so that rural places also see themselves as age-friendly places. And then the last thing I'll say is, is around placemaking. We just see that placemaking continues to be an opportunity that people gravitate towards. We've worked with Andrew Howard, who I know you featured on a previous podcast, and his group, Team Better Block. And over the years, we have had a lot of success using those techniques in communities, not only because they very effectively and creatively make the case for thinking about a place differently, but the other thing that we love about it is that it's a great way for volunteers to get involved and roll up their sleeves and feel like they're making a real difference in their community. And often, you know, those placemaking techniques are temporary. But again, we really hope and expect that they're part of a longer-term sort of set of changes that are underway in the community. 
I'm curious, we didn't talk about this in our preparations, but you've sparked an idea or more so a question in me. And that is, let's say someone's listening to this podcast and they're really connected with what you're saying and and they want to get involved. And they're kind of just thinking, this just seems like a lot of stuff though, you know, from placemaking to maybe more kind of small town rural improvements to transportation. Like there's just so much, it's too much to think about. Like what's like the first step? Like what's step one or step two that's just an easy bite-sized thing that someone can do to help start impart a little bit of a difference in their own community? Honestly, I think that the best thing to do is sort of get informed. And I think you're right. There are so many different on-roads and on-ramps, whether it's transportation or housing or disaster resilience or placemaking. I think the best thing to do is just to get informed and get start to get acquainted with things that are happening out there in the world and in your community. And then find the thing that really speaks to you, that moves you to action. And we have a weekly newsletter that we release every Wednesday, and it's filled with ideas and sort of inspiration from around the country. So that's a great way to have something dropped into your inbox every Wednesday. You can sign up at our website, which I think you'll share later. But yeah, again, we try to equip people to sort of download a publication or maybe request a print copy, and then just you know get a few friends together, walk around your neighborhood, talk about what you see, and then pick one thing that you want to make change in. I think oftentimes it's finding what that low-hanging fruit is or is that quick win can be as a way that of really galvanizing more community interest in helping to make any community a better place to live for everyone. This has been really insightful and very helpful for me, selfishly speaking. <laughs> I hope others find it very helpful too. I mean, learning more about livable communities through AARP is really exciting. And I'm glad we kind of stumbled upon the program and, and the work that you're doing there is incredible. And I want to ask, as we start to wrap up, I'm really curious about what you personally are most excited about as you look ahead, both within Livable Communities program, but also just perhaps within this greater urban planning context that you spoke of. Yeah, I think a a couple of things. There's a lot of things that really excite me. I love all of this work, which is why it's really a fun job to do. But I think I'm really excited and encouraged by the fact that the aging frame, if you will, the age-friendly frame has really, it resonates with people, right? People, again, they can see themselves in it. It's an invitation for more people to be included than I think can be the case with some of the other planning terms we tend to utilize. So I think of people like Gil Peñalosa, who rocks the crowd every time he speaks anywhere because he is so engaging. He tells such a compelling story about how a community that's good for an eight-year-old and good for an 80-year-old is good for everyone in between. So he's been a really wonderful partner to us. And I've never seen anyone walk away anything other than inspired by him when he speaks. So he's someone I always find really interesting. And I'm hopeful that his message continues to get out there. The other thing I'm really sort of intrigued by and excited about is just transportation, biking, micromobility. I think increasingly we are seeing that bikes, and I'm a huge bike fan and biker myself. So I'd love to see biking become part of the conversation here. A true conversation about mobility. It includes biking, that includes e-bikes, it includes scooters. I mean, I think we recognize that these micro-mobility solutions have a place in communities, whether they're urban or rural. And we have a lot of figuring out to do how they fit well in places so that they are in fact safe, they are in fact used in ways that expand access rather than limit access. So I look at people like Karina Ricks and the Bike Plus plan that just came out of Pittsburgh. It is super intentional about how to incorporate those modes into a transportation network going forward. And I believe that that is really the way of the future for all communities that when you're thinking about how to get people around, you have to have every single option on the table. It's not just about 
as we know, it's not just about getting cars around, it's about getting people around and figuring out ways that people, again, at all ages can do that. E-bikes are a really huge step forward for older adults who might have stamina issues or strength issues or balance issues. There's all kinds of great technological solutions out there from trikes to e-bikes that make biking more feasible and allow people to do it longer in life. So those are the kinds of things I get really excited about. And again, it doesn't just benefit older adults, it benefits everyone. Yeah, I'm going to be sure to link all of this information into the show notes from all of the resources available with AARP and through your Livable Communities team. I'm also going to be sure that we link the 8080 cities, um, the mobility and infrastructure work in Pittsburgh. And then I think I'm also going to probably throw in the Minneapolis 2040 plan and some of the other um, like California Measure M that we talked about in our notes, just so people can kind of get a sense of um, what's out there, what's happening, and, and really get back to that education piece that you referred to a little bit earlier. Thank you so much again for joining me today. I want to do one more thing here, and that is just to roll out the red carpet for you, Danielle, and give our listeners a sense of where they can find you online and, and what you're up to. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks, Chris, so much. And I think all those, those links are great. You can find us and follow our work at ARP Livable on Twitter. If you're on Facebook, we actually do have a little Facebook group, ARP Livable Communities. My own personal Twitter is at Danielle Aragoni, all one word. And you know, we'll be at a lot of national conferences this year. We're making a really intentional effort to get out into communities and into practitioner spaces so that we can both inform them and familiarize them with our work, but also learn from them and making sure that we're leveraging as much good work that's already happening out there in the urban planning space as we possibly can. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me again today. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.